Julie, I want to talk to you about one of the hottest topics in the health world, one that I honestly feel like I know very little about. What is your familiarity with the gut microbiome? Uh, I know it's billions of little things that live in my tummy and probably dictate more of my health than I'm aware of. <laughs> yeah, I feel like for me, it's mostly just something that I know will show up as a headline in one of my emails or something in the newspaper. And I have read some of those, but not with a lot of fervor or interest because I haven't just really taken the dive. So today we get to take the dive because I want to know more about the gut microbiome. So usually I feel like we try to give this awesome intro with like background about the topic. It tees up the conversation with the guest. We sometimes give stats and all this stuff to kind of tell everybody. And as I sat down to write down this amazing intro that I was going to give everybody today, I realized I know nothing about this topic. And even as I was researching it, I was like, now I'm ruining the fun of this episode. So <laughs> I instead am going to ask you to stay with us and we're all going to learn this together. We're going to talk to a familiar friend who is a published expert in this field. He will break it all down. What is the microbiome? What does it do? Does it affect our health? Can we affect it? Can we improve it? Maybe more importantly, can we hurt it? What is it? This is one of the most complex concepts we have featured, I think, on this show, Julie. I mean, I think everything is kind of complex when you want it to be, but this is the complex of the complex. And I'm not sure that there are even answers to these questions, which is great. So, Julie, are you ready to make everything that we're about to hear more digestible? Oh, God. Yes, I am. I love this. All right. Grab your probiotics and let's roll. Yes. Welcome to your doctor friends, the show that teaches you to sniff out the garbage and answers all the questions that you wish you could call or text your doctor friend. My name's Julie Bruni. And I'm Jeremy Allen. And we are two physicians who work at a nationally ranked practice and take care of some of the world's greatest athletes. We know that you have questions and we want to help. We want to be your doctor friends. All right, welcome back. As I mentioned, we invited one of our favorite guests back on to give us the lowdown on the gut microbiome. So we're going to please welcome back Dr. Alessio Fasano. As a refresher, Dr. Fasano is the director of the Center for Celiac Research and Treatment and the Mucosal Immunology and Biology Research Center at Mass General for Children. Is that on your business card? That's a lot of words. <laughs> He is a professor of nutrition at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and is widely sought after as an expert in celiac disease, intestinal permeability, autoimmune disorders, and the microbiome. He's also the co-author with Susie Flaherty of Gluten Freedom, which we discussed on our last episode with Dr. Fasano on gluten, as well as Gut Feelings, the Microbiome, and Our Health, which is going to be way more pertinent to our conversation today. Yes. And this was published in March of 2021 by MIT Press. So, Dr. Fasano, thanks for coming back on and can't wait to learn everything from you in, I don't know, a little less than an hour. Okay. Thank <laughs> you, Jeremy, for having me again. Thank you, Julie. Yes. Highly sought after by your doctor friends. Yes. And other really mainstream publications. <laughs> My first question for you, Dr. Fasano, has nothing to do with the microbiome itself, but more about your book. How long did that book take to put together? Uh, forever. And yes. <laughs> When we were approached the first time, I told the people at MIT Press, thank you, but not thank you. And the reason why is because, you know, as you mentioned in your intro, the microbiome is a hot topic, but it's very, very dynamic. And writing a book on the microbiome risks to be obsolete the day after that you finish. And when finally we agree on the approach to do that, just make some more general rule of the game, so to speak, so that they don't change. And 
we were start to write the book, we finished the second chapter and we have to go back to the first chapter. Oh, no. because, you know, you have to start lower again. You know, it is probably one of the most prolific fields in, in history of, of human health with seven, 800 papers a day coming out. So you can imagine, you know, how dynamic it was. When we finished the book, COVID came, so we have to start all over again. Mm-hmm. So anyhow, it was a act of love, but I think that the final product was not too bad. Yeah, and I think you've really highlighted how exciting this can be, right? I think some of this conversation we're going to have today is trying to separate fact from fiction and maybe take away hype and talk about fact or where we're at or what the future may hold. But ultimately, whenever you're talking about medicine and health and something new that we haven't really discovered For us who are in the field, that's super exciting because a lot of things have been discovered and we do them on a regular basis. But I have to imagine this is a pretty exciting thing to deal with on a daily basis. It is. It is. And again, it's the evolution of a series of failures that we in the field of human health have been experiencing and frustrations. But this is the building blocks of science. You know, science is a constellation of failures with very few successes. And, you know, the world of microbiome exploded from uh, what was a disappointing outcome when we embraced the Human Genome Project. This was a huge project that was conceptualized to find the basic of the disease of humankind, any disease, because at that time we thought that each gene was holding responsibility for one disease and therefore the possibility to fix it. And after many, many decades of hard work, a huge amount of effort and money, we realized that genetically speaking, we're extremely rudimental. We're made in only 23,000 genes. You know, if you think that a worm that we go fishing with, they have 75,000 genes, three times more than we do, you wonder, first of all, what this is all about and how we became the dominant species. And from that disappointing finding, we realized that the situation is much more complex than we conceptualized before, and we would not understand ourselves as a human being and the balance between health and disease if you don't put in the context of the environment that we live in. And this microbiome is this parallel civilization that we evolved from birth to death and has a lot to do how we play our genetic cards. That was awesome. I think that's a great transition into and keeping the context of how long it took you to write that book. Tell us what is the gut microbiome, but keep it to the point where we can all know your entire book in about one (laughs) one to two minutes here. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, there are a lot of people that can make several statements or definition of the gut microbiome. And I I just want to make this as, as clear as possible. It's an ecosystem. It's a parallel world. It's an organization that lives within us that works in a relationship with the host in a symbiotic way if everything goes well and therefore they favor our health or in a detrimental way if we don't take care, as you were mentioning, Jeremy, of our microbiome that will make us play in the wrong way the genetic cards and therefore have a negative outcome. It's been a world that was completely naive to us until the recent past because we didn't have the know-how, but most important, the technology to appreciate the complexity of this ecosystem. Now we do. And there is a totally different world that opened up in terms of possibilities. When I talk with my students, particularly young students, the way that I compare the microbiome is a sort of farm with different animals. There are cows, sheep, chicken, and 
pigs and so on and so forth. They are the diversified ecosystem out of metaphors of the bacteria, viruses, archaea, protozoa, and so on and so forth, parasites, that they need to work and live in a friendly balance. But in doing that, they communicate with the host and they dictate if, when, why, and how some of our genes are put on and off, what we call technically epigenetics, and therefore decide how we play our genetic cards. Are you already confused, Julie? I'm no, I'm not confused. <laughs> I'm I'm dumbstruck. I don't know. The whole concept makes me one feel very small, as small as the as the the little creatures that live in my gut. Two, it makes me very excited about the future of medicine because the concept is, and Dr. Fasano, you can educate me about when the first sort of rumblings about the microbiome kind of began, give us a little history lesson. But it makes me think of like, I can't even imagine what 20 years from now medicine's going to look like and how we're going to integrate in things that we weren't even aware of. Like, look at the, right. the boon of mRNA technology and just creating vaccines and how now we can utilize that to potentially... That five years from now. Exactly. Like so much stuff totally that I was like, oh. I cannot even think what's going to happen five years from now. Yeah. So, you know, again, let me put this in a little bit of a context. When we believe that the genes were responsible for all our clinical consequences, so the paradigm during the Human Genome Project was, you know what, genes and environment are necessary, sufficient to really understand why some people got sick with specific disease, some not. And we were under that premise until the Human Genome Project told us that's not the case. So if you look at the epidemiology of diseases humankind, particularly in the past four or five decades, we've seen a huge shift of the reason why we got sick and died. For almost two million years, infections were the main reason why we got in trouble and eventually died. And then we understood the basics of infections and we start to develop remedies, sanitation of waters, the advent of antibiotics, the vaccines, and so on and so forth. And if we embrace a Western lifestyle, the way that we fight these infections, but also the way that we eat, the way that we sleep, the way that we manage the stress, the way that we're exposed to pollution and so on and so forth, the destiny completely changed. Because during this period in the Western lifestyle, we've seen a plummeting of these infections, but a huge rise on uninfected chronic inflammatory diseases like autoimmune disease, allergies, cancer, neurodegenerative disease like Parkinson and so on and so forth. So bottom line, if we embrace a Western lifestyle, we don't die fast of infections, but rather slowly of chronic inflammatory diseases until COVID comes and Mother Nature put back everything in context. So the question is, if you look at this phenomenon with a pessimistic approach, you say, geez, we're changing the environment too fast for us to adapt because this increase in such a short period of time, you cannot blame genetic mutation. That takes generations. While we're in the same generation, we've seen this increase. So it's the environment that changed. But look at the same phenomenon with a more optimistic view, and you learn another lesson. If I'm born with the genes for cancer or for Alzheimer, that's not destiny that I would develop it. It really depends how I play my genetic cards. If I play my genetic cards inappropriately by embracing Western lifestyle, 
I see the acceleration of this problem. If I do not, maybe that I will learn how to slow down or even reverse this concept, meaning that genes and environment are got to be important, got to be necessary, but not sufficient. There are other elements that dictate my destiny. And the microbiome, over and over again, with the 700 plus papers coming out, it becoming more and more the center of attention because it seems to be the transducer of environmental factors, no matter if you talk about stuff prenatally, mom's lifestyle, how she's living in a rural or you know, urban area, is she drinking, smoking, or perinatal? Am I born full term or preterm? Am I being you know, an intensive care unit because I'm preemie or not? Did they give me antibiotic or not, breastfeeding or not, or postnatal? What is my life trajectory? What do I eat? Do, am I stressed? And so on and so forth. All this impinge on the composition of the microbiome and its function, and therefore will affect the way that I play my genetic cards. And if I play that inappropriately, I switch from genetic predisposition to clinical outcome, start them march from genetic you know, clinical outcome. That's the reason why. Either I do genetic editing, but that's impossible because the genes involved in this complex disease are many, or I take care of my microbiome as a way to mitigate this problem and try to stay more healthy. That's the reason why there is such an attention on the microbiome right now. Dr. Fasano, prebiotics and probiotics seem to be everywhere. In fact, on my cereal this morning, it said it came with prebiotics, which I'm not completely sure I understand the difference between those. So maybe you can talk about that. But can these affect the microbiome? So let's start the definition. Prebiotics are molecules that can feed the good microbiome, the good microorganisms. For example, the human monooligosaccharides, they are in the breast milk. Okay, so it's food, the, the good bacteria or good viruses and so on and so forth. Probiotics are the good microbiome, the good bacteria. Symbiotics, it's when you have a formulation of pre and probiotics together. So that, in other words, not only you have the good folks, but you also have the food for them to grow. And then the postbiotics, that now is really getting a lot of attention, is the product of probiotics that can eventually mediate that beneficial effect of probiotics. One example, short-chain fatty acids, you know, butyrate. You know, it's something that will increase the health of the intestine and therefore ameliorate inflammation and so on. Now, we see on the market a little bit of everything. Mostly, we see probiotics. It's a huge market. But I start to see, you know, in the market domain also symbiotic and prebiotics. The postbiotics are the last kids in the block. A lot of athletes, for example, now are making use of postbiotics to ameliorate inflammation. So this is what this world of the microbiome is leading to with the desire to have tools to change the microbiome to our advantage. But this, again, if you allow me a final comment on the matter, is the classical Western attitude. Easy fix. I have headache, give me a pill for headache. I have a joint pain, give him a pill for mitigating my pain. I'm obese, give me a pill to lose weight. People, they don't want to work toward that goal. I think that, again, if you really want to make change the, your microbiome to your advantage, lifestyle, it's more sustainable, it's more physiological, 
and is the most effective to do that. Starting with nutrition, as we discussed before, but also taking care of our body 360 degrees. So you're not recommending taking these? You don't wake up in the morning and take your prebiotics, probiotics? Again, it's the same with antibiotics. It's not that I don't recommend it. When it's needed, I go with that. And if there is a need to have an immediate impact on my microbiome, maybe not now, in the future, I will use probiotic to customize what I lost to be replenished, so to speak. So I lost bifidobacteria, I think bifidobacteria, and so on and so forth. Right now, what I recommend to my patients, what I do to myself, is to use natural remedies. Best source of probiotics, yogurt. They're fresh, they're multi-strains, they are compatible, you know, with my biology and so on and so forth. The same story with prebiotics, you know, fermented food is the best source of prebiotics mm-hmm. because they feed the good microbiome. When we know how to customize that, so in other words, you know, that I can have a detailed analysis of microbiome with the specific understanding, not at the species level, the strain level, because that makes a difference. There is a hierarchy in the microbiome. What I'm missing, then I can see the probiotic specific use to fix that my specific problem. But that is at the moment in which I have the problem. In general, it's much better to really work on the lifestyle so that kind of situation will not materialize or will be minimal. That's what I think, you know, it's the same. Implementing hygiene will prevent me to have an infectious disease. But if I do, antibiotics is the way to go. And, I'm, you know, if I have a meningitis, yeah. I can't not take it. Do you recommend people taking antibiotics also take probiotics at the same time? Absolutely, yes. That is one okay. of the conditions in which probiotics, multi-strains, not a single strain, but multi-strains, because we don't know exactly what is the dysbiosis, is one of the recommendations that I give right now for the use of probiotics. Yeah, Alessio, it reminds me of how we counsel people on their calcium intake. People say, well, can't I just take a bunch of calcium pills? And you're like, well, actually, there's data to support that too much calcium in your bloodstream creates kidney stones and and clogs up your arteries. But if you can consume calcium-containing foods, like you're you're talking about, talking about fermented foods and other things, it's like, bake in the goodness, baby. You know, you're going to get the (laughs) nutrition from, from those foods because it's food, as opposed to like, eat whatever crap you want and then just take this pill. And I think people are hopefully learning the benefit of that approach of make it sustainable because it's already baked in. That's right. Well, you know, again, taking probiotics or antibiotics or, you know, a medicine is an extract. I need to eat anyhow. I need right. to eat them today anyhow. Yeah. If I do better and I do a, a therapeutic act or preventive act, I think it's all to my advantage. Are we born with our microbiome? Is it something we develop? Maybe give us the origins of how we got this farm in our in our stomachs here. So this is an object, a huge debate, far from being settled, by the way, because, you know, until the recent past, we thought, well, the engraftment microbiome occurs at birth. If I'm lucky by vaginal delivery, if I'm lucky because I would not get the proper microbiome by C-section. Now there are evidence that even during conception, and therefore the father's microbiome may have a role, you start to really pass along to the next generation of your microbiome. There is a lot of discussion about placenta microbiome now and blood microbiome. And that's the reason why mom's lifestyle, before that we are born, it's instrumental. But the vast majority, of course, is passed during delivery. 
Now, again, there are crucial time, what we call the crucial thousand days of life from conception to years of age, in which the engrafting of microbiome can be subjected to derailment. So evolution speaking, again, we're supposed to be born by vaginal delivery, not exposed to antibiotics because two million years ago, they were not such a thing to be fed real food and not junk. You know, if the infections were occurred by immune system, I used to deal with this and not helped in any shape or form and so on and so forth. And you look at the composition of the microbiome in this period, particularly the first two years of birth, it seems to be completely chaotic. Some folks, they come in, they left. Then other folks would substitute the other one. Then you start with the baby food, that there is another shift, and everything quiets down at age two, and you acquire the mature microbiome that will stay with you until senescence, where we have other shifts at that point. We've wondered, what is all this chaos? How can we make sense of all this? That's not chaos. That's dating. We're searching each other. The microbes come in and say, this host is good for me. I'm going to find my biological niche here because I can re-thrive here in exchange of hospitality. I'll give some back. And the host say, I like that attitude. You can stay. Others, they come in and say, you know what? This is not my niche. This fellow is not good for me. I better find another fellow. I need to get out of here. Same for the host. So it's this searching each other to find a sweet spot of you know, mutual advantage to live together. Imagine the impact of anything that disturbs this searching. Again, pollution, stress, feeding, antibiotics. That changed the searching each other, and that will put us in a trajectory to play our genetic cards in an appropriate way. Can you explain an example of, and this may be way too complex, but you seem to be really good at dumbing things down for a little old me, of a situation where, like you mentioned, having potentially the gene for a certain type of cancer, having the gene for Alzheimer's, which, again, playing your genetic cards in the best way possible behooves us. Can you give me kind of like an explanation or an example of like how potentially the little cows living in my gut change those genes or create an environment where those genes can be expressed or not expressed? Are there actual examples of that that we are aware of? I can give you two examples. I know you could. One is autism. Autism, yeah. Autism is a, a neurodevelopmental disorder that is, you know, like any other chronic inflammatory disease in uphill rampage. But it's very peculiar. In the 70s, autism affected roughly 1 in 10,000 kids. Now we are 1 in 36. 1 in 36. So in only 40 years, one generation we accelerated the rate of autism to the point that consider that male-female ratio is four to one. Next generation, one out of four boys will be lost because of autism. And again, this is not a matter of genetic mutation. It's that we are really creating the syndicate to create that switch from genetic predisposition to clinical outcome. And the second example that I want to give you it's an autoimmune disease that is celiac disease. We spoke the other time about this. 
And the reason why I'm giving this as an example, because it's the only autoimmune disease for which we know the trigger is gluten. So you can trace exactly when gluten comes into the picture. Well, if you follow babies from birth, even before birth, a risk for either celiac disease and autism, you can really see the dynamic of what happened in terms of engraftment and the clinical consequences. To make a very long, very long and complex story short to answer your question, Julie, now we are capable to see the dynamic of this engraftment and how different that is between the kids that being genetically predisposed, we stay on the course and will not develop either autism or celiac disease, and the ones that unfortunately we take the wrong turn, and they do. And what we learned is that in those that eventually develop the disease, months before, months before that they develop the disease, we see derailment of the microbiome, changing of the microbiome. And most importantly, these changes, they are characterized by loss of some protective element against inflammation, because all diseases are due to an inflammation process. Protective element that will put a break on inflammation are lost, and an overexpression of belligerent pro-inflammatory component of the microbiome in those that eventually develop the disease. Months before, with roughly 90% accuracy, we can predict now who down the road will develop disease just looking at the composition and function of the microbiome. Now, this is done through complex studies of, you know, kids followed prospectively for 10 years using artificial intelligence and then eventually answer the question, what exactly happened? And what we see indeed is those that lose those protective elements, for example, they are not have the capability to eventually reprogram the host, in this case, the intestine, epigenetically to deal with this exposure to environmental trigger that leads to the disease. So in other words, these friends that are there say, let me tell you how to handle this. I'm not there anymore. So that's in a very simple way to explain what is going on and what we are understanding here. I don't know if we appreciated the consequence of what just I said, because that would mean that if this data will be confirmed, we are target for intervention. What would be the holy grail, the primary prevention or personalized intervention when I say, you have that specific shift of the microbiome, I know what to do about this. So that's where we are in a sort of crossroad of the study of the microbiome. We're moving from descriptive. You know, I can see that the microbiome of kids with autism is different from the microbiome of the kids that don't have it, to mechanistic. I know why, and I know eventually what to do about it. Again, it, it was a long journey, but, you know, the acceleration of knowledge, the abatement of the cost of how you can analyze all this, and the capability to develop remedies has been so fast. And that's the reason why Julia said, not 20 years. I don't know what's going to happen five years from now, because it's a shift of paradigm. That's what it is. Right now, and Jeremy, I know as a sports medicine fellow, you know what I'm going to say here. What we do, we treat the consequences of the problem. Is my athlete having inflammation? 
I try to mitigate inflammation with anti-inflammatory remedies, but I treat the consequence, not the cause, not the reason why the mm-hmm. wheat has inflammation. Here we are at the root of the problem, the cause, and therefore you will eradicate the cause rather than the consequences. Because when you work on the consequences, your intervention works only until you implement. You stop and the inflammation will come back because the cause is still there. So that's the shift of paradigm that we're experiencing in studying the microbiome. You mentioned two conditions that are very widespread, and you brought up autism and those stats, which are probably well-known, but also always hard to hear, but is also a very polarizing topic. I think a lot of people trying to figure out where autism comes from brings up a lot of emotions for a lot of people. So I just want to clarify a few things or push a little bit there is, do we feel the gut microbiome is playing the heaviest load in autism, that this is where we're going to be pushing forward to try to figure out that we can get ahead of it and try to prevent it? I want to make very, very clear that the heart of the problem is not the microbiome. The microbiome is just a transducer of inappropriate behavior in terms of lifestyle. If I pollute my environment, if I don't take care of the soil, the water, the air, that will have tremendous consequences because the other thing that people, they do not appreciate, at least in death, is we are not alone here. And my microbiome is not that once comes to my guts, stay there, stable. It's a dynamic process of exchange with my environment because when I eat, I ingest microbiome. When I poop, I bring this microbiome back in the environment. And if there is something wrong in the environment because there is pollution, I will eat whatever there is in there because I eat vegetable or livestock that have been you know, exposed to that or I drink that water. And what I'm reacquiring is and a microbiome that is not friendly with me. So it's a matter of one health, so to speak. It's not that I manipulate the microbiome and I resolve autism. If I don't resolve pollution, enough not resolve global warming, if I don't respect my environment and my body by sleeping well, decreasing exposure to stress and taking care of our environment the proper way so that we are not destroying our surrounding. You can manipulate the microbiome as many times as you want. This will come back to you and harm you. So that's a concept that I believe that not just healthcare professionals, but policymakers, politicians, industry, they need to appreciate. It's not just a moral obligation to leave a planet that is better than we found from our previous generation. It's just the essence of survival of human species that will not be able to continue this trajectory. We will not be able to adapt. Microorganisms, we will. They will. So at the end, we will be extinct. The microorganisms will be here. But, you know, we can decelerate this extinction situation if we really puts our act together. So you've said the number is now like one in 36, which is a crazy number. And you said it's getting worse. And what you've inferenced there, and I think what I'm hearing is that the environment that we don't necessarily have individual control over, but maybe as a society, we have macro control over plays a big part in that. But are there factors that we do individually have control over with our microbiome that would play a role in why this has shifted so fast so quickly? Absolutely. You know, you're born only once. You may take antibiotics two, three times in a year, but you eat three, four times a day. 
nutrition by far is the most impactful way that you can eventually affect the microbiome. And it's the ones that shift the most if you embrace a Western lifestyle. So I think that I'm not breaking news here <laughs> that junk food is not a way to feed probably our microbiome. To go back to the parallel of the farm and different animals, they eat different stuff. And they eat stuff to maintain a certain equilibrium that was based about the evolution. What I was eating for 99% of my evolution as a gutter hunter, a lot of fruits, a lot of vegetables, nuts, tubers, meat, sure, once in a while, you know, and lean meat because these are animals that escape the predators. Now, if I live a Western lifestyle, quality and quantity have been completely changing. So there had been a study that was published a couple of years ago that was an open-eye experience for me. Now, 2023, the main reason why we got sick and die is not infection anymore, but diet, nutrition. That's the main reason why. The number one attitude, too much salt in your, in your diet because of cardiovascular disease and so on and so forth. And then rest, and I can make an argument about the salt business, but at the rest, low fruits, low vegetables, low fiber, and so on and so forth are all conditions that we feed the microbiome in, the, in an inappropriate way. And again, this will have an impact. So the only thing that we can control as a low-hanging fruit is nutrition, to the point in which many chronic inflammatory diseases now are managed with not drugs, but diet. For example, epilepsy that do not respond to anti-epileptic drugs, now we manage with the ketogenic diet that with the same efficacy with the anti-epileptic drugs. Inflammatory body disease like Crohn's and ulcer colitis, at the beginning, the first thing that you do with them, you give steroids to quiet down inflammation. Now the first line of intervention is an elemental diet. All this suggests that, again, once we understand what have we done in changing the composition of the microbiome? Which part of the farm is lost? I can feed those animals that now have been put in disadvantage and imbalance that. Now, easy to say, very complicated to implement. Why? Because there are many aspects that prevent us to do that. There are educational aspects. People believe that eating meat every day is fine. There are social aspects, but the most impactful is the economic aspect. If I'm a single mother with two kids and I have $10 a day to feed my family, do you think I can feed them the healthy food with fruits and vegetables? No, I don't fill the belly of my kids that way. I go to you know a fast food and $1 I give a sandwich. And again, we see this already in the practical matter. Another major chronic inflammatory process that is going to be extremely impactful is obesity. And who pays the childhood obesity price? The poor. The ones that cannot eat properly. And obesity, of course, comes with many consequences. Of course, you know, you, you insult organs like the liver, so you develop fat the liver, you develop metabolic disorders. We've never seen before in my life, we see type 2 diabetes in pediatrics or heart attacks in pediatrics something that we've never seen before. So this is a long way to answer your question, Jeremy. I believe the only thing that we can really control on the personal level, but also the social level, is nutrition. And we have strive, for example, junk food is not allowed in schools anymore, in cafeterias. Now people, they start really to make the move because they realize that this will affect very, very impactfully 
uh, the health of our next generation. What's really interesting to me is what I'm hearing from you, and we've had conversations on this podcast before about diets and weight and things like that. But what I'm hearing is, is that when we talk about nutrition, and I feel like that is a, such a moving target, right? Like what is good nutrition? I'm hearing from you that rather than focusing on what we love to focus on, which is caloric intake and all the micro and macro stuff that we look at in foods, we should be trying to identify foods that are good for the microbiome and be eating microbiomes good foods. And it doesn't really matter what the label says in terms of like how much calories it is. I mean, to a certain extent, but again, like if you're not eating processed foods that are not good for your microbiome, you're also probably not eating things that are going to lead to poor metabolic issues. Am I semi in the ballpark there? Yes. And a matter of fact, in the introduction, you introduced me also as a professor in nutrition and I contribute to the misunderstanding, I guess, for many years of these pyramids that we've been putting food pyramids so that it, what needs to be in the bottom that you have to eat a lot and what it needs to be on the top that you have to eat scarcely. You know, there is no such thing. There is no rule that applies to everybody. So now we talk about precision nutrition. Customize, as you, you in the sport medicine, you do this already. You take this individual that plays a specific sport, and I'm pretty sure that your recommendation to feed an athlete that plays basketball is different than an athlete that plays football. And within the football team who plays one role, it's different than that plays another role. We all like this. And it all depends on not only our metabolic needs, but also on who we are genetically speaking. Everybody knows there are people that when you talk and focus only on quantity that we realize is not the way to do it, or calorie intake, there are people that eat 7,000 calories and they stay lean. Mm -hmm. And other people that just look at the food, don't eat it, and they gain weight. That's all metabolic driven. So that tells you already the future is going to be personalized nutrition as a way to feed the microbiome that metabolically will keep you healthy. So. You know, this will be achieved by the big numbers, the big data that will create through artificial intelligence modeling, but also to a more active involvement of the patients. It's happening already, by the way. You don't know that, but, you know, this guy here will measure now my number of steps, how long I sleep. And, you know, my general activity in the future, we will have wearable device that not only will tell that, but will tell me am I stressed because my heart rate accelerated immediately? Am I depressed because eventually I am not active as before? Am I lazy because the number of steps is not in the average of what I'm doing? And all this information real time will go to my PCP that will say, Alessio, it's been three days that you're eating junk and not moving. And I see the shift. You got to make a derangement. You need to change it because health improvement, it's something that has to be not passively received that we've done so far from our doctors, but we need to take ownership of that. Nutrition is one way to do this because that's I control. And, you know, I know already that if I eat a certain way, I will have consequences. Like I know that if I spoke three pack of cigarettes a day, I may increase my risk of lung cancer. I know that. Or unsatisfied sex, I don't know, HIV. But, you know, we need to put that kind of countermeasure there that would not come from third parties, but would be part of who we are and how we handle ourselves. The goal is not to live 
longer. The, long, the goal is to live longer, healthier lives. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What matters to live until 90s, 30 years of this, 90 years of my journey on the face of the earth is on a wheelchair with two be my nose. I don't want to do that, right? And we now know that even aging is an inflammatory process. We call this inflammaging. And we know that the microbiome shift because this process that reached a certain point in which the steady state of rejuvenating cells while the others, they die, will just unbalance and they die more and more and the rejuvenation is not there. It's an irreversible process. We all are going to go through it. But now biologists said you can slow down the process. You can even prolong life expectancy by manipulating your microbiome. This has been done in animal models. Now the question is, how are we going to do this in humans? And is the proper way to handle this? That's another, you know, an object, another debate. But all this to say, any inflammatory process, including the aging process, is influenced by the microbiome. Dr. Fasano, you mentioned that the shift is hopefully going to go towards precision nutrition or personalized nutrition, which I think is fascinating. And then going back to talking about the first thousand days of existence, that really by age two, things have kind of settled out, although it does seem like there are some major shifts that we can make in our day to day and, and controlling our controllables of what we put into what we feed the farm animals. How do you check someone's microbiome? Are you looking through my poop? Do you do a endoscopy? Do you do a blood test? And if so, does it matter if I do it now at age 39? Is it better off by doing it at a three year old? Is there a way that we can say like, hey, three year old, here are the things that would make the most sense for you to be eating or different types of, I don't know, yeah, the, the controlling the controllables that make sense that, so that we can make this algorithmic for people. So this is a very articulated question that I will try to answer in an intelligible way to give you some examples. N equal one. During pandemics, my grandson was born and my daughter, my son-in-law, very busy. My wife and I said, we will help you out. So when he had to be winning, we took over and he was weaned with a Mediterranean diet. Never seen anything other than fresh stuff. Fast forward now, he's four. Never tried the French fries, nor is interested in French fries or any given junk food. His favorite dish is escarole. He eats <laughs> very methodically. Capers first and then olives and then the escarole, even if they're all together. Never got an infection. He's extremely healthy. Never taking on antibiotics. Meaning that in the three years of life, he really led that searching with the microbiome going the way that it was supposed to. How do you do that? Yes, you take these tools and you can look at the composition of the microbiome. It was unaffordable until the recent past. Now with $70, you can figure that out. What to do about this is still a question mark. So it's object discussion. And if you play your lifestyle in a probably this period of a thousand days of life, in other words, you've been born by C-section and you've been exposed to a lot of antibiotics and so on and so forth. Unfortunately, there's no much you can do about it. But that doesn't mean that your destiny is done and therefore you can continue to do whatever you want. Even at 39, you can put your act together. It's like to say, I've been smoking the cigarettes for, you know, 10 years and then decide to quit. It has any impact on my life? Absolutely. 
you know, it would decrease definitely the risk to develop problems. So no matter how old are you, lifestyle, because we're not talking about diet, even when we talk about the Mediterranean diet, it's Mediterranean lifestyle. And if you look at the quote-unquote Mediterranean pyramid, at the basis, there is no food. It's activities. Because you can eat as healthy as you want. And then you sit 10 hours on your couch. <laughs> Guess what? Or you sleep three hours a night and you don't have a good health lifestyle. You will pay consequences no matter what. So it's really to change the complete attitude to say, Again, I'm not advocating to go back in the cavern and to be the current man. But, you know, we were supposed to move. We were supposed to eat scarcely. We were supposed to eat in a certain proportion food. And the level of stress was not 24 hours a day, but occasionally. Am I exposed to a, a dinosaur? I got to run. But it's not that I... Am I supposed to do this for 24 hours a day to the point in which my stressors will get to the point in which, you know, that completely changed the dynamic. So easy to say you need to control your stress. Very complicated to do that if you live, again, a modern lifestyle. And now we have another variable that we did not predict. Wearable, I mean, you know, this stuff here. This is very invasive because, you know, when this was just a phone and nothing else, I can decide if they answer or not. Now, it is stressful if I answer all my emails or Twitter's messages and so on and so forth. But it's equally stressful if I decide not to because I know they are there. <laughs> so <laughs> it is very complicated, but it's you know, destiny is in our hands. It's time, I believe, that you know we pause just for a second. And think about it, because if you start to give a, a phone at three years old kids or tablets, you need to know that you're going to pay consequences. And we need to, as a society, to be less egocentric in terms of say, it's me and nothing else, but, you know, more comprehensive and try to understand if I control myself, the environment, you know, respect the others. I live a life in which, you know, society and family are important those kind of dynamic will really help my microbiome to be in a friendly relationship with me. Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, I feel like so many of the conversations we have on this podcast and so many conversations we have with patients and just in general medicine have to do with the struggle between personal responsibility and the environment in which we live. And I feel like this conversation is really talking about, well, we have our own interior environment too. And maybe that's something that there's parts of it that we don't have complete control over. But we can, by engaging in those health-promoting behaviors, like we've talked about many, many times on this podcast, things that you just mentioned right now, Dr. Fasano, you know, eating nutritive foods, moving your body in a sustainable way consistently, sleep and stress management. We've talked before about personal interconnectedness. All those things matter, and we have some degree of control over them. And I just feel like it's nice to have conversations about not blaming people for making the wrong decisions, because... Anecdotally, if you you know, you could give a million different clinical vignettes of one person, of a little boy who only eat the Mediterranean diet and doesn't ever get sick. But again, when you're looking at population management and how we can all make people healthier and better as a whole community, you're right. It's as diverse as the microbiome. <laughs> so I'm loving this discussion. Yeah, you're absolutely right. But you know, back to the concept, <clears throat> the principle to write this book. There are some principles that are undisputable. 
I mean, everybody may play the game the way that he or she sees more appropriate. You talk about an argument that we didn't even touch sustainability. Sustainable food, for example, is a huge debate. If you think that, for example, how sustainable is the way that we feed now a $6 billion population that will become $8 billion shortly. Hey, no, it's not sustainable if you know we consume 70% of the water resources to grow livestock, while we take only 5% to do fruits and vegetables. But on the other hand, we are omnivore. We can't pretend to give up completely with animals and all become vegetarian because that's not defendable either. It's a matter that balance again. Do we all need this huge amount of investment in livestock because we have to eat meat every day when we know that this is not going to be a good health impact on our health and rebalance things? And I know that you know, people now, you know, the source of protein can be other than livestock, like crickets and so on and so forth. That's a matter <laughs> of personal decision. I'm not sure how I would react to eating crickets or versus fish or meat. But, you know, again, that goes to the personal decisions, of course. You mentioned the testing. Is that something that I can just like go to Walgreens and buy? Or is that something that like doctors prescribe? Like, how do I test my microbiome? Not yet to Walgreens. It will be there. But, you know, again, the accessibility of testing microbiome is all economically driven. That's it. So when we start to work on the microbiome, one sample to be analyzed will cost, you know, $10,000. So that would be totally unaffordable. Now, the cost of this stuff really abetted tremendously. As I told you, you can test your microbiome for $70. In general, our specialized labs, they do that. And some of these labs now are, quote, unquote, building a business, you know, model to make that available. And this is the premise of a few labs, but it is a matter of time in which this will become, you know, universally provided because, again, the technology, the know-how, and most importantly, the cost will become so affordable that every single lab will do it. And this happened before, you know, when, for example, to do a genome testing, so in other words, to do my entire gene assets, you know, this was premise of big labs with a lot of money then uh, became a 23andMe kind of business that people will go there and got that. Now, any lab can do that. And we do for personalized medicine because some therapeutic decisions, for example, you know, specific drugs that you want and don't want to use on individual needs to be dictated by the genomic profiling. And we do that. So this is going to happen the same with the microbiome. Yeah. Do you think that we're going to recommend testing? Do you think in the future it's going to become part of like well-child visits or part of like a physical or something like that? So again, I don't know the year, but if you look at the book that I wrote, you know, Gut Feelings, there is a last prologue at the end that said, this is the year 2030. And this is the way that I see it. I go to Jeremy's office as my physician. Jeremy already has my genome in the data records because, you know, since birth, everybody will have the genome done. And you ask me to bring my poop that you take and you analyze in the back office with your, you know, aluminum, you know, stuff in there. And then you do my physical. By the time that the physical is finished, that information has been analyzed, will be matched with my genome. And through mathematical modeling to millions and millions of individuals, you will tell me, unless you listen, 
your genome, your current microbiome is telling me that, you know, the reason why you have this joint pain is because of you lost this element there and we need to adjust that. And you can adjust this with probiotics or the diet so that, you know, I know that this particular food will feed that microbiome component that you're missing. Or there is too much of a pro-inflammatory component that you need to put in disadvantage by changing your diet or, you know, again, giving a specific antibiotic for that particular fellow. But even more exciting to me, it's another perspective that you will tell me with this matching, you have 70% the possibility to develop Alzheimer in 10 years. And you need to really change the microbiome that this is not going to happen because I see that, that with this modeling, that's where you're going to go. And by the way, it's going to be not just monodimensional, the microbiome, but it will be multidimensional. You will look at my metabolomic profile in my proteome, my data sets that you got from my wearable device, and you put all this in the modeling, that will be more and more accurate and more and more sophisticated. We will be at the Star Trek level in which we put something on the skin and fix a wound very quickly. I don't know when, but I know that this is going to happen. Yeah. If I could tell you my fear, my fear of that is that we get access to that information, but we don't have as many ways to intervene on it. It's like the Huntington's disease debate where Huntington's disease for those listening is a disease that's genetic and will always lead in you dying and early death and there's no treatment or cure for it and it's genetic so if somebody had it before you your father i believe whatever the point being is is you can get the test to find out if you have it but there's nothing you can do about it so the question always is, is do you get that test or do you just live your life and so again with the same concept of like if i wanted to know i had a 70 percent chance of alzheimer's but i didn't you know those lifestyle choices that you said I should probably make to try to help my life, I probably should be doing those anyways. And do I want to know that I have a 70% chance of Alzheimer's or not? Or do I want to just live my life? Yeah, well, that's a good point. Mm -hmm. There is a lot of ethical component there also in terms of personal information shared out there and you know confidentiality and so on and so forth. But what I was saying about the modeling is that we will make use, unfortunately, of the mistake made in the past. We know already how you got to Alzheimer's from the data that you've been accumulating in there, in there from millions of people that went that way, that will lead us to information what to do to avoid it. Again, Alzheimer is an example of another condition that had been way ramping. You know, two generations ago was extremely rare. So that means that, again, why two generations ago making a diagnosis of Alzheimer's Huntington will have no solutions. Now, with all this data acquired, we know what to do. Huntington is not a right example because it's a genetic mutation in there. Genetic editing could be a possibility because I don't think that you can do too much by manipulating the microbiome there. But ALS, for example, that's, you know, that's, you know, or Lugari disease, those are the ones which are multifactorial and definitely the microbiome in making you to go the wrong direction. And if we capitalize on understanding what happened to go in the wrong direction, we can eventually avoid to do that. Yeah, Jeremy, it makes me think of the conversation that we had recently about the $2,500 full body MRI scan that yeah. Kim Kardashian wants everybody to get. And right, but Alessio, your point is that would be great if we had modifiable ways to interpret those results and say, okay, if we found this blip in your lung or we found this thing on your colon, on your scan, so like 
like you had just said, Alessio, we have found that this change in some sort of health predicting thing, some blood test or whatever, or your blood pressure or something. And we can also look at your microbiome and say, hey, you got too many sheep. Let's get rid of some of them sheep. Like there's an actually an intervention. The problem now is that it's so hard for us as physicians to worry about there's not a benefit to having all this testing if we don't have yes. interventions to make outcomes better. But so, Alessio, I am, I share your optimism about we can and we will. And it's people like you, the physicians and researchers <laughs> that are showing us that we can do it. No, but you know, Julia, I, with all respect to Kardashian, of course, <laughs> that, you know, advocating everybody has the total body MRI. Right. It's such a joke for two reasons. Of course. One yeah. at the personal level, as you said, you know, I would do that. I will sign off if that will have the possibility of giving me an early diagnosis that I know is implementable and I can fix. But Lido will help me if I have, I don't know, pancreatic cancer that unfortunately, no matter how you handle it, even early, it's very, very difficult to really slow down or eventually treat. And again, you know, <laughs> the beloved Kardashian that I'm not sure what that's for living because, you know, well, this is another point. But anyhow, <laughs> sure. when you come to health costs of the society, you have to do cost-benefit analysis. And, you know, if you do breast cancer screening to everybody at a certain age, that's a cost-benefit analysis has been proven over and over again because early diagnosis will make a difference. And the frequency of breast cancer is such to justify that. But total body MRI, and what about if I found a little spot in my lung that means nothing? What do I do about this? Well, the microbiome is a different story there because, again, mm -hmm. if you want to believe that the epigenetic pressure of the microbiome would really dictate what's going to happen to us, it's not a fantasy that we have a target intervention there. Of course, we have a lot of work to do, but it's very different to say, now that I know that this is epigenetic move, I can't do anything. Epigenetic means it's plastic. So again, let me give another parallel that I always use with my students. The human genome is like a piano with 23,000 notes. And the combination of what I can play is infinite even if the number of notes are limited. That's the reason why we are so complex as a human being, despite that we are rudimental genetically. And the piano player, I believe now there is no question that there is a general agreement is the microbiome. So if I don't like the music that you're playing, I may say, I don't want you to play my piano. You got to get out of here. I want another piano player. The question is how to communicate with the micro microbiome and how we can decide how to change the, the piano player. And that's the object of a lot of work right now. That's the dynamic part of the book that made me not want to write it. And, you know, the publisher, the MIT Press said, just tell me about the piano, the piano player, and what kind of mechanism are there? Because those would not change. How are we going to do this is probably coming along. And as you said, Julie, it's the object of, focus of who does research. Imagine if we had the same attitude on cancer therapy at the beginning when we knew that cancer was a, a sentence to death. Said, so forget it. Don't do anything because, you know, you're not going to be able to fix it. Now there are some cancer like leukemia, particularly in pediatrics, that are completely resolvable because the 
work in the tenancy and stick with the program of individuals that precede us, and some of them are still around us, that were stubborn enough to continue in that direction. So, you know, if we acquire the information that the microbiome has so much to do with our health, the only logical way to do that is to go to the next step. How can I influence this to my advantage? I gave nutrition as an example of the low-hanging fruits. But, you know, the probiotic industry is already $10 billion industry jumping the gun, probably in an inappropriate way, hopefully not vilifying what is a, a tool that would be important for us, and using probiotics and nothing else to try to influence my microbiome to my advantage. That's it. The problem is that we don't know exactly what to do yet because now we start to learn what is the deviation from the symbiotic relationship between myself and the microbiome and what to do about it. Imagine, you know, there's been a huge discussion, what is the healthy microbiome? There is no such a thing. There is not such a thing, a signature of a healthy microbiome. We're all genetically different. Even monozygotic twins, epigenetically different meaning that we all have to have a different microbiome to be in the perfect match with our genome. What is non-negotiable is the outcome of this discussion. We all have to have the blood pressure in a certain range or the glucose level in a certain range. Mm -hmm. We achieve that because that friendly discussion between us and our microbiome. This is a fundamental notion that will answer the question, we this, like then who cares? Like the like, said, we do care because we have a way then to go to the next step, what to do about it. It's not that we just acquired information, I have in dysbiosis, so what? There is nothing I can do. What what is the challenge again? Is that is this dysbiosis related to my clinical outcome? That's what we want to know, the mechanistic link. And that's where you know the entire field is moving toward. Let's wrap up. Alicia, tell us about the book again real quick. Tell people what it's called, where they can find it, that kind of thing. So the book is called Gut Feeling. It's really the results of hard work in which we contacted the experts in the field. So this is something that is not only factual evidence from the literature that, again, is extremely dynamic, or my own opinion on the matter, or Susie's opinion, but also what we were able to acquire by interviewing experts in the field in different aspects of the story from pre-birth to elderly ages. You can find it on Amazon. Very easy. By the way, all we get from this book is devoted to research because neither Sus or, or I would take any money out of it. It's a technical book, so it's not for general readership, but it's intellectual for people that eventually have a little bit of background of biology in general. And I believe it's a lot of food for thoughts because <laughs> it really encompasses many of the things that we discussed today in terms of, you know, respect ourselves by respecting the environment so that your microbiome will be well respected because, you know, it's a matter of mutual respect between us and this ecosystem we live within us from birth to death and will dictate our, you know, destiny. I love it. We're definitely grateful to have somebody like yourself providing literature like that. I mean, the fact that people can buy that and read that and know that they're getting trustworthy information to add to everything they're seeing is, is awesome. So I highly recommend reading it. I read a quarter of it, as I mentioned to Julie, before this interview, actually a month ago, and actually a quarter of the way in, I decided that the interview would be worse if I had all your information. So I plan to actually now go back <laughs> and finish excuse. the other three quarters of it. 
I was learning and I was like, oh, shoot, I want to not learn before this interview. (laughs) So I'm now really excited to finish it. It is. It's really well written and starts at the beginning and really gives a good background and is written for all levels. So I highly encourage people to check that out. Thank you. All right. Well, let's just remind ourselves that food is fuel and the microbiome is not just a bunch of cows playing piano, but it kind of is. (laughs) So listen to your doctor friends. That's right. (laughs) That's right. The amazing music is credited to Skillcell with Pixabay licensure. The podcast is meant for educational and entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast should not be taken as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Please consult a medical professional for any medical issues that you may be having. The contents of this podcast are the opinions of the hosts only and do not reflect the opinions of their employers or affiliations. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall Dr. Julie Bruni or Dr. Jeremy Allen or any guest to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast.